Pat Clear, when did yourself and your wife Josephine realise things were going to be different? Well, for us, um, the whole thing uh, became very different, as, as we put it. Uh, the moment that we, we actually went to the hospital for my wife to deliver um, our child, and she was actually in labour at that stage. We had left uh, where we were living in Nace at the time, uh, full of high spirits, because everything seemed to be fine. There were, there were no problems. Um, there had been no problems flagged during the pregnancy at all. So as far as we were concerned, everything was great. And uh, I suppose for me, being in the, the father's waiting room watching uh, and not watching television at the same time with the other fathers, for us, uh, it really took place right there and then when they took a scan of my wife, uh, even though she was in labour, something was going wrong. And at that point, they asked me to come out to uh, speak to the radiographer. And at that stage, I re we realised that something was different, that our child wasn't going to live. And um, it was quite a shock, as you can imagine. So so for us, it was it was right there and then, in labour, you can say. I hate using the phrase, but from then on, it was downhill, wasn't it? From then on, it was, yes, very rapidly downhill. Um, we discovered, first of all, that our child had uh, a, a little-known condition, but, but actually, I suppose, in medical terms, probably very well-known, and encephaly which means that the, the skull of the child doesn't um, doesn't develop properly and uh, the child therefore can't live. Um, this could have been known throughout the pregnancy, um, but we were never made aware of that fact if it was. Um, and so from then it went, yes, it went rapidly downhill from the point of view that my wife had to go through the complete labour. Um, we were, if you can imagine, a young couple on our own in Dublin, um, nearest family 70 miles away, and basically, um, my wife gave birth uh, at about 11, 11.30 that night. And I suppose we'd have heard about this at about four o'clock in the afternoon. So it was quite quite a, a time, the labour, the finish up of the labour was quite bad. So then um, after that, yes, it went quite quite rapidly downhill. And we had quite difficulty with the staff. Um, in fairness, they didn't want us to say that the baby was going to make it or, or anything like this. Nobody at home knew there was any problem with the baby at all mm. um, of course how could they when we didn't ourselves so when people rang in and asked how are things going how's the labour how are things um, the staff in the hospital said look just tell them the baby is dead there's no sense in telling them anything else and I suppose I blurted that out on the phone to my mother and that was her way of finding out that there was something wrong um, eventually things went bad when the baby was born the midwife's <clears throat> literally didn't want us to see the baby. So they ran away with the baby once the baby was delivered. And my wife asked, can we please have the baby back? We want to see the baby. And the, they literally were saying no. <laughs> they weren't actually responding at all. So finally, after some words from me and from my wife, we finally got the baby back. They said, he's dead, he's dead. But he wasn't dead. They found a heartbeat miraculously and brought him back to us. Um, we got about five minutes with him, roughly, at which time the staff told us that they were going to bring him somewhere where he could be more comfortable, which um, I suppose at that point, for us, it was the most important thing in the world that he was more comfortable. And uh, I asked if I could remain with him, and I was told that I couldn't be accommodated and I wouldn't be accommodated, and you're better off to go home. So my wife was... I I remembered um, that my wife was sedated, um but my wife is unsure about that, but I remember them saying they were giving her something to sleep and that basically I would be useless at this point. There's nothing I could do, so please go. So that's what I did. Um, I suppose at about 2 o'clock in the morning, whatever time it was, by the time I was leaving, um, it had been quite a day and I think I was very open to influence at that stage and I was very shocked and I was quite young as well, so I went. But by the time I got back to NACE, I realised I shouldn't be in NACE. I should be actually back at the hospital. So I made a phone call. And um, as I often think of it now, it's well before the days of the mobile phone. So I had to wait for a phone box. And when I got one, I rang the hospital and they said, there's no point in turning back up again. And so by that stage, I said, no, I'm going back up. So I got in my car and I was on my way uh, back to Dublin when I passed my flat at the time. And I found that my parents' car was outside, so I went in and spoke to them about it. And they felt exactly the same way. This is There's something wrong with this. This was your first child. Yes. Who you called Patrick. That's right. And 
I, I can't imagine the state of shock you were in and then meeting your parents like that. But, but proceed, mm-hmm. what happened next? Well, both my parents felt that there was obviously something wrong with mm-hmm. this. I mean, you should be up there. So I went back to the phone box and I just rang them and I said, look, I am going up and that's it. But they said there's no point because he's dead. So, and I suppose at that point, um, it was just too much. I just couldn't go up until the next day. Um, in the meantime, when my wife was, was uh, being put to bed, if you like, she had asked that if anything happens to the child during the night, please wake me. If it's possible to wake me, wake me. And she had asked one of the nurses if the child had to have a postmortem because we knew he was going to die. It was only a question of time. And the nurse said yes. <clears throat> that was the only official, uh, in semi-official um, word that we had had in any way that the child would have a postmortem. We were never asked for one. We were never given anything to sign, to my knowledge, mm-hmm. um, or to my wife's knowledge. And so, uh, basically, when my wife woke up in the morning, um, she had previously, as I said, asked to see the child if anything went wrong, or if he died during the night, to please wake her, and that she would like to be with him. Um, they said they would, but they didn't. So in the morning, when my wife woke up, um, they said, you can't see the child now, he's down having his postmortem. So she never actually got to see him alive after uh, that five minutes we had in the delivery ward. And that was their way of telling her that baby Patrick was dead? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, <clears throat> they had given us a photograph, they gave my wife a photograph of Patrick. Now, as I said, Patrick had anencephaly, which meant that his, his skull covering wasn't complete, so his, his head, you could say, could have been a bit flat, you know? Mm-hmm. And... Um, so we asked for a photograph of Patrick and they gave my wife a photograph taken from the feet up, if you like, in the incubator, which meant that she couldn't see his face. And so she asked for another photograph and they said, we only give one. So that was... Uh, oh, it's a hospital policy? One Polaroid only? One Polaroid. So we insisted. And so eventually, uh, the next photograph we received was after his postmortem. So we only have one photograph of him alive, and that's from a, a disjointed angle. You know, you can just see his body, but not his face. Um, so it went downhill even more, if, yeah. if you can imagine. I can't, actually. But, but I'm sure um, listeners can't either, but, but continue. Well, um, the first time we went to see him laid out, he, he had been delivered to the chapel um, in a cardboard box, and his body was propped up in the side of the cardboard box. And this was quite visible um, because we ended up taking photographs. And the reason for that was because my wife said, look, she'd spoken to her mother who had come up and said, look, I, I'm not in a position to take photographs of him. I'm not going to get much opportunity from now on. Can you take some photographs? So she did. So she took quite a lot of photographs, which I suppose now today are, you know, proving the, the points that we make that our child was laid out in a cardboard box. And then on another occasion, um, the... Uh, a nun uh, came to see us and she talked to us about the burial arrangements and she said that the the hospital would gladly look after the the burial arrangements and we had said no we want to bring him home and we were being almost persuaded you know well don't bother you know why would you bother I mean we look after all that we were saying no 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 we really want to do this so then we asked for clothes to be placed on the baby um, because we had ordered a coffin and um when the coffin arrived, we wanted the baby laid out in the coffin and in the clothes that we wanted. And the, the nun literally um, said in a very curt and very uh, straight manner, a vest will do. So we had an argument there. And finally, after another argument, we finally got the child's clothes on the child. Um, so now we had a situation where the, the baby was laid out in, in the clothes we wanted, in, in the coffin that we had bought in the, the church in the little chapel in the hospital. And when the time came to bring him home for funeral, um, what happened then was even more interesting because the hospital uh, sent a porter to the to the, the, the chapel with a hold-all bag, a sports bag, general sports bag. And they said this was policy, that the baby's coffin should be placed in the hold-all bag and brought out in the hold-all bag so as not to offend other people. Now, my wife and I would be the last people in the world who would want to offend or hurt anybody. But we felt this was really lowering his dignity to, you know, the lowest limits possible. 
and uh, but we had no choice it was it was simply the way it was going to happen and that was it and i had previously asked for uh to park my car uh in the the hospital car park and i was told it was for staff only um and i had to park on the w line it just got worse and worse but the one thing i must say that's very interesting is that in terms of placing the coffin in the hold all bag this was uh, at a, a public meeting um just a couple of years ago or maybe last year this was denied. It was denied that this ever happened. But thanks to the fact that my mother-in-law was there taking photographs, she took a photograph of this event. So, you know, at least we have those photographs to show that these things really happened. So out of the car and the hold-all bag was emptied and taken back into the hospital. Yes, it was retrieved. The the porter came with us to the car and stood there patiently waiting for the hold-all bag. So we had to take the baby's coffin out of it and uh, give him back the whole doll bag. Yeah. Now that story in itself is um, is instructive, we hope, or informative even to, to people. But that was 16 years ago. Yes. Um, and then the next discovery. Well, roughly about a year and a half ago, um, we had heard about the Parents for Justice and we had heard about uh, retention of organs. And <clears throat> to be quite frank, you know, we had felt that there was so much else wrong with what had happened, you know, with, with our delivery of our child, with the subsequent um, mishandling of the situation. I mean, even to the extent that when, when my wife had um, lost our child, when our, our baby was actually dead, they moved her to a semi-private ward with another lady who was about to lose the baby right beside the nursery. So it was really a, a total mishandling of, of the situation. We felt that there may well also be other things to be concerned about. And so I decided that I'm going to ring um, to find out if uh, our child was numbered among those whose organs had been retained. And strangely enough, uh, we discovered that most of, in fact, almost all of our child's internal organs had been retained. So um, this was, you know, revisiting another horrific uh, situation in our lives again. Yeah. No mention. No mention whatsoever. Absolutely not. The first time. In fact, I often wonder if we hadn't asked, would we ever have known? And one of the things that that we've subsequently had two more children, and we've often wondered that if one of them decided to do medicine and ended up working in that hospital, would he or she come across their brother's organs, you know, maybe 20 years later on a shelf, which is where I presume they were. Um, So we, we made arrangements to retrieve those organs, and as I say, we hadn't given permission. We we hadn't given, we hadn't been asked uh, for a postmortem, let alone given permission for it. So we made arrangements to retrieve those organs, and we we had a second burial of those organs. But um, this time we brought the casket. That there was a little casket provided by the hospital, which we paid for because we we felt it was hypocritical in the extreme that suddenly the organs had become such an important item to the hospital that they even offered a prayer service to go along with it. So we felt that was hypocritical in itself, however well-intentioned. So what we did was we paid for the the casket ourselves and we refused the hospital's offers of uh, flowers and undertaking and we took the baby home again. So that was, um, yeah, that was was added, if you like, Mm -hmm. uh, 15 years later. So in fact, um, our son Patrick would be 16 on the 1st of May. So it's almost 16 years ago now that it happened first. And where does all this now reside in your, in yourself and Josephine's life? I mean, is it anger to the hospital? Is it beyond anger? Is it, is it heightened by the? By the way, if, uh, on the if you had been asked, could they harvest the organs? Mm-hmm. Yes or no? Do you think? If we felt that our child's organs could help somebody else, we would have said yes. Yeah. We, we both agreed with that. Um, the point, I suppose, is that um, we were never asked. Okay, um, so, so more than likely you would have said yes. That's the irony of it. More than likely, okay. yeah. So where resides all this in your life now? We, we, in a sense, we look on ourselves as lucky, luckier than some of the other parents who are discovering this, this situation now because we have time and distance between, ourse- between, we'll say, what had happened and now. We both um, believe strongly uh, in justice, not vengeance. You know, we're both ang- we're angry, of course, and 
But I suppose our anger, if you could call it that, was heightened by, you know, the apparent arrogance of people that, you know, throughout this whole process. Do you torment yourself over that drive down the nice road looking for a phone box and not turning back or turning back and then stopping, so to speak, is that? Absolutely. Um, For years I have lived with the guilt of going under pressure. And I think that's a... That's a really male thing, I mm. think, and that's how I have dealt with my own grief as a man, you know, because I think that men don't talk a lot about their grief. They don't talk a lot about how they handle these situations. And I believe that, uh, yes, I do. I've, I, it has haunted me that I actually left under pressure, despite the fact that I realized I was young, that I was in shock, sure, sure. that all of these things were there. I think men are socialized to feel they're the protector. They should be there with their child at the last. They should be there. And I feel that I wasn't there. And for whatever reason I still wasn't there but I mean I suppose I have put that in a good place now and I realised that if it happened again maybe I would have a different opinion or maybe I would act differently because it's happened before but um, I believe that I couldn't have done anything different you know because the, the medical staff were very persuasive and they were bluntly telling me go and they weren't going to accommodate me so I think I'd have been a very strong person indeed for to resist that By telling your story now in mm-hmm. this way, surely there's a, a chance for for people who are in those positions to to hear that's, and learn. Uh-huh. Yes, that's something that I would hope, that, and that's one of the reasons I'm here. Actually, it's, it's a main reason that I'm here. When I was asked, would I come and and tell the story? That's what I hoped would come from it. The people listening would would say, well, you know, that could be me, or in fact, I suppose my. My wife and I would like to thank somebody. Uh, it's the first opportunity we've had to do it. And um, we'd like to thank somebody who was on the radio, I think it was the Gay Byrne Show, uh, in 1984 or 1985, a week or two before my wife went into labour. Because that lady had the courage to come on the radio and say that when her child had died in, in a hospital and she had given the, the child to the hospital to bury, that the child was buried in a, nun, in a, a plot and she had gone back and she couldn't find where her child was buried. And my wife and I both said, if anything ever happens to our child, we'll always bring our child home. And only for that, only for that lady had said that the week before, uh, neither my wife or I would ever maybe have, we'd have succumbed perhaps to the pressure because there was considerable pressure to leave the baby there. And we had both made that agreement. It's uncanny and it's a coincidence. But that, I'd just like to thank that lady who was on that show 16 years ago now she's still around and listening because she was the one that helped us to make a decision there and then so maybe if I can help in any way maybe by being here to help someone else make a decision that'll be something good So Pat Carty, the baker, is coming home on the last Friday in September in 1988. He's been working to one o'clock, half one, early into the morning. What do you remember then? Um, Heading home, nodded off for a few minutes and uh, going around the bend. I knew the road well. It was kind of road I I go better road usually, but there was a friend in front of me, so I said I'd go this way. It was a bit nearer, and um, woke up and the car was heading for the ditch, and the car was only nine months. I says, "Oh my God, I better not go home with this battered." So I tried to get it back on the straight again, and it just flipped. And I suppose it happened all I suppose in a minute, but it sounded or it seemed like you know an hour at the time. Um, just flipped over and rolled a few times and turned around on the road again and hit a pole and I was conscious for the whole thing and um, I the car was upside down one leg out through the window one leg out through the door and a friend of mine that was working with me was ahead of me and he came back when I didn't come to the end of the road less than half a mile away and I think the poor fella he was in a worse state than I was so after a while then another friend of mine that was in school with came along and the doctor came and Ara, you know, they took me out and 
threw me in the ambulance and landed me below in Sligo Hospital. But at the time, I suppose, um, I have, um, I'm a paraplegic, like, I've broken back in two places. But at the time when I was told it, I didn't, um, I didn't realise what it was. I thought, you know, a few weeks of that, that I'd be home kicking again. In fact, I thought up until I was 45, the worst that had happened to me was a pair of glasses, like, you know, but... Um, sure. It's funny how things go. Like I, I was mm. flew me up to Dublin that that day, and I was operated on in the matter, and then I was sent out to uh, Dunleary, where I did. I spent nearly six months in the rehabilitation centre out there, and they were really great. Like they really got you adjusted and got you, you know, working and got. I suppose got you around. I was going to say frame of mind. Frame of mind is a funny thing. You never know where your frame of mind, you know, at the start, like I thought, even though people told me, um, like the doctors told me that, you know, they felt that it was kind of complete and I was saying it wasn't. And I suppose you're always kind of trying to grasp at straws. But um, it's like that was what? That was September 88. So, you know, it's a good few years gone since and I'm not walking. So I suppose they're right. But... I still maintain I proved them wrong. Like they kind of said I'd have to give up the fairman and all that. So I proved them wrong there. I kind of expanded the fairman and, you know, really kept it up. But I suppose in a way it's an uphill battle. But if you like it, then you don't think of it as a battle. You just think of it as doing what you do. Like whether you're a baker or a faker baker or whatever you are. Like I, um, I was off work, I suppose, for about three years. Um, and I suppose in fairness to my mother... I'd be still off work, like I'd be dancing about, but I had no, um, there was no claim or no, you know, I was only 20 at the time and I have, um, my father died when I was three and I just have another sister. Or no, I was two when my sister was three. So like, we really hadn't money, like, so I had to get out and work, you know, just to, to have a few pounds, like. So my mother was really great. She um, encouraged me to do a computer course and then after that, I joined, I went back to work where I was working before in the office with All Fresh Products in Charlestown. And I was with them, I suppose, for about two and a half years after that. So then I decided I'd move on and I went to a company, uh, TJ Grady's. Um, and I was with sales in the office with them as well. And now I'm with, back with the same company again and I'm out on the road as a rep mm -hmm. with sales and that. As you've been flown from Sligo general to the matter in Dublin in the army helicopter the air corps helicopter did you then realize the seriousness of what was ahead of you or even the no the extent of what was ahead I of you? didn't it um it's kind of funny you know I never broke the only thing I ever broke was my nail like you know and like I broke my back in two places so I thought even though the pain was unbearable it was like you know a knife sticking in your back I still thought it should be worse you know, so, you know, someone, you know, when you'd be told your back was broke, like, you know, gee, that's kind of serious. You thought that you'd be dying, like, you know, but I thought I, I didn't. I didn't realize it. No, I didn't realize the extent of the injury. No, I knew my legs were numb and all that. But no, I didn't. And I suppose I seen people when I went to Dunleary, I seen people walking around, not many like, you know, but there was a few like and you keep thinking, there was a fella there and he was um, he broke his neck and like he was pulling the wheelchair around with his legs you know he was able to move his legs and I thought I says I remember calling one of the nurses over and saying is that how I'd be first like that I'd be moving pulling the wheelchair around with my legs and then I'd stand up and start walking again you know and she says oh yeah probably or we'll see you know but um, what was what was registering in your head Pat and the in the first, in this twenty-year-old's head, it was a workaholic before that, working on a farm, working in a bakery, living life. What were you picking up? Do you remember phrases? Do you remember any wisdom from that year, or maybe? Yeah, I remember I, an uncle of mine. He came up to see me in hospital, and he said, um, "I suppose for a twenty-year-old, it's a big blow. Like for anyone, it's a big blow." But he said to me, he said. Um, always he'd be like an uncle he was kind of like a father to us he said oh he says always if you're in good form he says people come to you and they'll i suppose encourage you and help you more whereas if you're down people won't bother with you they'll be trying to avoid you and it isn't that i'm putting on a knack but you know i like talking to people and i 
tried to be in good form, you know. As a fella one time told me when I was working at the bakery, he, um, you know, he'd rear up about different things and he said to me, he says, if I get grief, I'll give grief, you know. But even though you kind of have grief, you know, there's no point blaming everyone or kind of, you know, jumping down everyone's neck because, you know, how the way I am, like, you know. You're, and does, in terms of your frame, what's in your, how do you understand what happened to you now in your, in your head? Um, I don't know, like to say what's to be will be like, and I suppose to be, and that's the probably the most important thing. I'm still here. So I was to be, I was to live like, and to say life is, you know, to say life is so precious and life is, but like, you know, someone would look at me in a wheelchair and they'd say, oh, that poor fella. But I don't think I'm a poor fella. You know, I don't feel sorry for myself. Like I can do I can you know I can do anything you know bear play football like you know it's um poor you know like it's great to be alive you know life is great and you know you hear people on about it like um and you wouldn't really realize it until you'd be in hospital and see people that you know would have passed away and you know when you lose someone like for a family you know to lose a family member it's an awful thing like whatever it be like if there were you know even to lose a father that has lived all his life or for a son you know life is you know and people say even if someone was there in the corner just to have the person you know so i suppose life is a great thing um and i was lucky too i suppose like we're in the 90s we're in the 2000s now like if it happened to me 30 years ago um I'd be, you know, like things was different. There was no cares to, you know, to every place you went, there was steps like no one, like no one was seen in a wheelchair, like out, you know, and around in my local town that people, you know, they wouldn't heed me now. They know that I'm in a wheelchair, you know, and mm -hmm. like people hadn't stared at you like, so that's a good thing. And did you go through the normal process of the what ifs? What if I had left work earlier? And Oh, yeah. But like, what if, you know, you have to get on with things like if you, you know, if I will say now, if I went out and backed into a, a Merc outside the door, I hope I don't like. <laughs> but if I do, if I if you do, you do right. You've backed into them, you've smashed the wing, you can get it fixed and you have to go on. Like, I mean, you're going to go home and you're going to have to sleep. And whether I bollock the fella that had parked behind me or he bollocks me. Like, I'm still going to have to go home and sleep and go to work tomorrow morning. And, you know, what's the need for the hassle? Do you ever reflect on the difference between a 33-year-old Pat Carty in a wheelchair and a 33-year-old Pat Carty whose car didn't crash that night? Um, I'd say a 33-year-old Pat Carty walking around would probably be grumpy. Not that I'm, I'm probably grumpy anyways. <laughs> Why do you say that? Um, I know I've missed an awful lot of people like I have I've been in Lourdes a few times not that I'm holy well I mean I like to go to mass and I do pray and all that like but you know the amount of people I've met like I'm a rep now we'll say on the road with people and like no matter what county I'm in I can call on some friend of mine you know whereas before that like that I'd have around in the country whereas before if I was working if I was you know I'd be at home not that I wouldn't be happy but you know you'd meet more people and you know it's nicer to circulate a lot more you know um, why is there no handles on the back of your wheelchair by the way <laughs> they're out of metal when they're making yes. it <laughs> i know i i suppose i'm independent like i'm lucky i have my upper body on that and i it's low and i just don't like people push well if someone says well i push me push you i'd say right fine i you know if people offer i don't like to you don't want to embarrass i don't either. want to embarrass or turn them away i think you know, if someone, you know, like if you were out in the middle of the road and you want to turn and no one will let you turn in, you know, mm. I, if someone asks, offers, I say, right, you know, but I don't, as a rule, I kind of plow away myself as best I can. But yeah. you but you deliberately bought a wheelchair that didn't have those two handles. I did, yeah. I did. That was a conscious decision. Yeah. 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 To, um, but I mean, I'm fine. I'm young yet, like, but maybe get another 10 years, I might be getting handles on it, you know. Mm. But for the minute, like, I'm, I'm happy going about my own business. Like, you know, all I need is like a little chip about an inch long put into 
to fuse the spinal cord yeah. like and if that comes around like you know i'd be kicking again but i mean whatever length if i'm 20 years 30 years i'd have to say it was a great great period like do you want to stand up i do um it isn't that i'm begrudging like you know people when you see people standing up or walking around i don't begrudge you know it's like someone if they had a, a new care rather like i mean you'd say good luck to them like you know but i don't begrudge it like you know it'd be wrong to begrudge people for your misfortune like you know i don't blame anyone for the crash like or you know people says this or that you know i don't blame anyone like the road was there and i could have pulled in and had a sleep or you know i you know i don't you can't be keep begrudging people you know but it would be nice when you go out at night you know you could walk with crutches you know you begin to swing in your legs like but you know to be able to stand up at the bear and you know things like that are you calm within yourself I am. As my mother has said, the only time you really get excited is when something new comes around at the cow cave. And <laughs> I, yeah, like I have the firm and I love the firm and that, like, I suppose, like, what would be really nice is to kind of, I suppose to get married and have a family, like kids would be, you know, it's grand to have, I, that's, that'd be the full circle, you know, to have a marriage and be happy and have kids and, you know, that I suppose would be the full, the full circle. And how do you reflect on what you've been through I I suppose you know to say hindsight is a great thing but I don't know it'd be nice maybe to see how I was if I was walking you know how I'd be at 33 but I don't think I could be any happier you know and that's not being put on like you know I'm genuinely uh, kind of an easy going happy go lucky that doesn't kind of worry about a lot you know there'd be bills there and you know I'd pay them when I you know when I get five or six reminders, you know, happy go lucky. I don't think I could be any more that I could be any happier if I was run, running around. Shields, most people living in Ireland can remember where they were on May the 17th, 1974, the night of the Dublin and uh, Monaghan bombings. That's for, right. For you, it was even more poignant. Yes, um, I remember the first we knew of the, the bombings uh, was that um, a young man appeared at the door. He was actually one of the uh, soldiers and uh, he was inquiring if my daughter Mary was home. Mm-hmm. She was working in town at the time and apparently uh, a young woman called Shields had been killed uh, in the bombing and uh, he just came in to... Mary, luckily enough, had arrived in on the train and um, he told us that a bomb had gone off in Dublin. And, of course, at that point we had no indication whatsoever that anybody belonging to us was involved. I mean, we just said, thank God Mary's home. And um, we didn't realise the extent, of the, the extent of the tragedy at all. And um, as it gradually uh, unwound the whole story, um, we got word from Drogheda. I was living in Balbriggan at the time, and we got word from home that um, our aunt, my father's sister, Septa Dempsey, had been killed in the bombing. She worked in Guyanese and uh, she was on the second floor. And, you know, uh, all these things that seemed to be if only. She was actually supposedly outside the building and went back in for a scarf and was in the wrong place at the wrong time because the front of the building came in. Uh, one of the big pieces of the piping from the front of the building actually um, got a uh, stroke her in the back now she did in fact live for a few days but uh, never regained consciousness although uh, when my mother and sister and brother went up to see her and my sister said that um, she squeezed her hand and called her name and Septa actually um, squeezed her hand 
back, so there must have been some level of consciousness there. But she did eventually die, and um, then the, the whole horror story unfolded. And I mean, it was something that nobody could take on board, and something, in fact, that has never been addressed. Nobody has ever been charged mm -hmm. with it, with the placing the bomb there. And um, when you hear about all these young families in Dublin that were bereaved and all the young women that were killed going about their own business, um, it, it's just horrific. So you saw pain, grief and injustice there. But oh, it was, most certainly, It yes. was to visit you again. Oh, it was indeed, um, although we had no inkling of that. And in fact, we had a big family, we had nine children. And uh, they were all loved and wanted, and we never had very much, but I was one of these people blessed with, I suppose, a, an optimistic streak. So I always thought that I look forward to Christmas and I look forward, even maybe more than the children did, and um, always looked forward and felt that there was something good around the corner. And um, for some years, things went along very well, and then, in 1983, Paula, who was 19 and working in Dublin, she was working the Ulster Bank in College Green, and uh, she came in, she'd just been paid and um, displaying some new finery to go out in. And I remember remarking to her, it was one of these um, Hessian dresses that were all the fashion then, sort of hippie effect. And um, she came in and dressed up in it, and she had a, a corduroy sort of overcoat in a tanny colour and dressed up and she looked gorgeous because she was really a lovely girl and um, she was preening herself and I said you know I said Paula the washerwomen years ago used to wear those dresses the hessian dresses and uh, but anyway I told her she was lovely and a short time later her friend's dad called and uh, she was a Sheila her best friend was in the car and her sister, they were identical twins, Sheila and Barbara. And Sheila came running in. And the last words I ever said to Paula was, um, aren't you lucky you were ready? And she ran out the door and she met her dad at the gate and she said, see you in the morning, Dad. Now, sometime around half past three in the morning, um, there was a knock on our door and I, and I got up and answered, and there was a guard there standing there, a young man who looked um, pretty upset. And um, he said he was calling to tell us that there had been an accident down near Drogheda, um, outside the Boyne Valley Hotel. And um, I said to him, is it bad? And he said, um, well, there's three dead already. And um, my husband was actually fell apart, to be quite honest. And um, the guard said that he would give us, um, take us down in the car to uh, the hospital as far as he knew Paula was still alive. So we couldn't understand how, you know, that she could possibly have been involved in an accident because we knew that she was a very careful person and um, she didn't drink. I mean, this is 1983 and I'd, uh, she didn't smoke, certainly. And up until that particular night, her sister, who was married, and her husband had brought them down because it was a new disco place. But um, I suppose the novelty wore off for the married people. And on that particular day, um, on that particular week, uh, Deirdre called and she said, look, Mum, do you mind if we, we are not going this Friday, she said, and uh, will Paula be OK? Now, we knew Paula would be OK, as we thought we did, because Paula would never, ever get into a car with anyone drinking them. And um, she said there was absolutely no problem, that they had a group of friends, and if they needed to get a taxi or whatever, but they had plenty of friends and plenty of lifts. And um, unfortunately, we didn't worry. Uh, there was often a time when I sent my unfortunate husband out in the middle of the night to collect them. 
and on that particular night um, I didn't and in a sense then that also stayed with me that maybe I should have because um, When did the enormity of the the tragedy unfold on the drive up to the hospital or No not for, I don't think so we didn't um, connect you see we didn't understand how it all happened and on the way down there was this little minibus sort of sideways onto the road but the side facing us looked didn't look bad because they had been hit on the other side but we wondered if that was um, you know the little uh, minibus that was involved or, or what or, you know where it happened well we'd been told more or less it was just outside and when we went down to the hospital, there was sheer um, pandemonium because um, two of the young men had been killed, two young brothers from Rush, two lovely young men. They had been killed instantly. And Paula's very best friend, Sheila, who had run into our house that night, she also died instantly. And um, there was one other person who was... Um, just about hanging on and nobody could be identified. The only reason that we were was because Paula had just bought her card for uh, travel, her train uh, pass and she had it in her pocket. So um, my daughter, my other younger daughter had come with us because she was actually to go that night and she had only started in Trinity and Paula said to her, look, she said, you don't come tonight, she said, you do your study, because the twins are 20 on Monday. And she said, we're going to have a surprise party for them. So she was sort of waiting one ear cocked to hear um, all sorts of the news of the disco and all the things she'd missed. And she was becoming a bit hysterical. So um, we were told Paula was still alive, and I asked if she had any head injuries. And they said no. And that to me then was looking good. Because I thought, well, if you know, if she's okay, she'd probably, because I knew she was a fighter, and I said, well, she, she'd probably survive. And in fact, of them all, we were told at a later stage, she was the one that would have ex they would have expected to survive. But unfortunately, um, well, we got in to see her after a while, um, and um, they had... Her face now was in a terrible state and her cuts and she had all lacerations to her face and poor little hand was out but it was quite obvious that her wrist was broken and um, what she looked, they had washed her hair and all that and did the very best they could and so she looked like Paula and um, requiring about injuries and we're told that she had something like eight ribs broken. The tops of both legs, the, the big bones at the thigh were broken. And um, she had a, a lot of injuries. One, one hand, her wrist was broken, but she couldn't go for, um, it would be the following morning before she would be um, looked after because they were, they had to stabilize, stabilize them. And um, now they told me to call her name, and uh, but she, they, she had been sedated, and I did call to her, but there wasn't really any reaction. So um, unfortunately, Paula died the following day at four, because what happened was the an embolism formed from all of the marrow of the broken bones, and it actually went to her brain. So she died. And eventually six of the eight young people in the crash died. Uh, one of the identical Newton twins lived, Barbara, but she had um, head injuries and very severe hip injuries and uh, legs broken. And one other girl whose sister was also killed in the crash. So you now had the the grief and sure the unbearable grief of um, what happened to your daughter Paula but then the injustice of how it happened emerged well yes because um, I think we went through the funeral in a state of shock 
because when somebody dies like that, it's hard to take on that it's permanent, that it's something that's never going to be all right again. And um, the effects of it on, on all of us, I mean, each and every member of the family was affected. And we were never again, and it has to be acknowledged, the same parents that were before. Because you have, first of all, I personally got to the stage where I didn't want to wake up in the morning. I couldn't understand how the radio could still be going on everything, television and radio going on just the same. And every time I heard the train, because Paul had travelled on the train, and every time I heard the train coming in the evening, it just felt like as if um, there was a huge dagger, an actual dagger stuck through my heart. And um, to be quite honest, um, there isn't a day goes by since that at some point that, um, you know, the grief and the, and the loss and uh, the whole tragic um, feeling that she, her life, she was robbed of her life, basically. Because people may say, well, there's not much in this life and all that, but still, life is precious. And we're all born into it, and with its ups and downs, we're entitled to be allowed to live it. You know, the fact that somebody um, gets into a car with too much drink, or as things turned out here, it was an articulated truck, and the guy who killed them admitted in court to having had at least 10 pints, and then he left the scene, and he went home, got himself home, drunk as he was, and went to bed, which caused, of course, further confusion. First of all, if he'd even stayed there and called for help a bit sooner, maybe somebody would have been saved, some of them would have been saved. And they were in that. Some of them were actually hanging out of the windows of it, already dead, when um, the manager of a hotel further up the way came across the scene and, and called for help. But um, the fact was that he, he just didn't show one single bit of uh, care for all those um, lives that he had destroyed. And then when the whole thing came to court, and we felt that um, surely... I mean, my husband didn't go to the court for the sentencing because he said, well, I mean, it's a foregone conclusion that this guy is going to get jail. And I have to say that that was one time when I heard the judge saying it was one of the worst cases he had ever heard. And he couldn't trust himself to sentence this guy. And then he put it back for seven days. Now, in the meantime, he sentenced some guys who had stolen sheep. They got six months in jail. And at the end of the day, when he announced that... Um, at a later court, he announced that um, it was, he was giving him a two-year suspended prison sentence and um, he was off the road for 15 years. Now, at that stage, my son, my eldest son, stood up and said, are sheep more important than people? And it has to be said that it actually made everybody's grief all the worse to think that they were of no account because right. that's the way it looked that it didn't really matter. And the fact that all these young people, and they were all aged between 18 and 22. Paula was 19, and the twins would have been 20 on the Sunday, and the eldest of them was 22. And they were, as one, um, the Garda sergeant said to me when I went down to the hospital, he walked over to us and he said, innocent victims. Because he said the first thing that, um, when young people are involved in crashes, and the fire brigade comes on the scene, they usually um, detect a smell of alcohol. You know, and they actually look sure, for that. Sure. But he said they were totally innocent victims. You know, and that didn't help any at all at the end of the day. It helped us in that we knew and we were proud of her. But, I mean, we've lost her and she was gone for good and nothing, nothing ever, ever was the same. So you had the death of your child, the 
awful circumstances of the death yeah. with with the the driver being drunk and then the reaction of society in terms of the court to oh, yes. that crime I mean yes. where did that put where does that leave everything in your head Gertie in terms of grief and well, dealing with it well it's 18 years down the road now and I still grieve but I have learned to live with it mm. because I found that um, in actually hating the guy who did it which I did at the beginning um, we were only destroying ourselves, both myself and my husband, both of us were actually destroying ourselves and we were destroying our relationship. And it was filtering its way down through our everyday lives. And he would have really, at the end of the day, I suppose, had the satisfaction of killing us as well. You know, and I truly believe that um, only from faith my faith, his, Jerry's faith in the resurrection and um, that we wouldn't have been able to cope with it. We really wouldn't. If I didn't believe that there was a next life and that uh, like Good Friday, that there's always an Easter Sunday, I would not have been able to take that on board.